trying to get a mask off with my microphone tangled in it. So, well, good morning. And um, this morning, as um, Reese alluded to earlier, we think about deaths throughout history that are remarkable and too remarkable to ignore. I'd like to begin by sharing uh, one with you this morning. Uh, the life and death of one of my countrymen from the United States, the remarkable death of John Robert Fox. John Robert Fox was a second lieutenant in the 92nd Infantry, an all-black unit known as the Buffalo Soldiers that served with distinction in World War II. And as the Nazis advanced toward American forces in a small Italian village, Lieutenant Fox stayed behind as part of a small observation team. From his position, he began to call in artillery fire on the Germans in order to cover the U.S. withdrawal to provide time for reorganization and a counterattack. His radio messages kept moving the fire closer and closer to his position until it became apparent he was calling in fire on his very own position. When questioned and warned of the danger, his reply was simply, fire it. As a result of his action, the Americans were able to reform and to retake the village to discover Lieutenant Fox's body fallen among roughly 100 German soldiers. Nearly 50 years after this incident occurred, U.S. President Bill Clinton awarded Lieutenant Fox the Medal of Honor, the highest recognition for gallantry at great risk to one's life above and beyond the call of duty. His actions that day and his death had a lasting significance, an impact on lives well into the future. The same can be said to an even greater degree of the man we just read about in the book of Acts, Stephen. Today I want us to look at the remarkable death of Stephen the first Christian martyr. And Stephen's death came under different circumstances, but there certainly was a battle raging at that time by those seeking to oppose and suppress and stop the gospel message. And throughout history, Stephen has been given the highest recognition for the manner in which he lived, served the kingdom of Christ, and ultimately died for his king. He was truly a remarkable man who was unfortunately often overlooked or forgotten in our thinking. And it is a worthy exercise for us to consider Stephen's life, his ministry, and also his death. So how will we do that today? I must confess and tell you at the beginning, we will do that quickly and selectively. Uh, Megan just read 70 verses of Scripture for us this morning, and they are rich and full of magnificent truths, but time is a bit of our opponent this morning, and we can only cover and bring out so much. So before I even begin, I am glad that uh, many of you have begun processing this passage in life groups, and I encourage you to keep doing the same uh, after today uh, as you consider this passage. Before we go any further, let's just pray and ask the Lord's help. Holy Spirit, we come to the word this morning. We ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, open our minds to not only understand it, but to see the glory of the risen King Jesus. And would you also open our hearts that we might see him for who he is, yes, but that we might also respond to him as we should in worship 
in faith and in trust. We ask this through Jesus and for his glory. Amen. So what are some things that are worth observing and taking note of in the, in the, the life, the ministry, and, and the death of Stephen? Well, the first is this, is that Stephen's life was truly that of um, a remarkable man and follower of Jesus Christ. He was a standout, if you remember, among the seven selected to oversee the daily distribution of food to the widows that we looked at last week. Remember, there were seven individuals who were chosen out of thousands of believers at this point. And Stephen was on that list. And not only was he on that list, but he took preeminence on the list, being the first one listed. He was a man who was, whose life evidenced the control of the Holy Spirit, which is uh, noted by the way the word full is used in this passage. It's the idea of control. And as we go through uh, Acts chapter 6, uh, the verses we looked at last week into this week, we see that Stephen was a man, he was full of, of wisdom to such an extent that those who argued with him were unable to stand against the wisdom of his words. He was full of faith, that he exhibited a confidence and trust in God that controlled his life. He was full of grace and power, seen especially in his, in his ministry being accompanied by wonders and miraculous signs confirming the message. And he was full of the Holy Spirit whose ministry in the life of this man explains his remarkable life. And even his appearance, which is described as being like the face of an angel, seems to highlight the hand of God in his life. Like the face of an angel. Angels are those who minister in the presence of God and who reflect its glory. But I think it's also perhaps significant that his radiant appearance seems to parallel Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai after having been in God's presence and receiving the law. See, this is significant because as you likely picked up, accusations were made against him in regard to Moses and the law. He was falsely accused in a manner very similar to Jesus himself, wasn't he? He was charged with speaking against Moses and against God. He was charged with speaking against the law and the temple Two accusations which are distinct but somewhat intertwined. And, and how would he respond to this? Well, this man who lived a remarkable life filled by the Holy Spirit and evidence of God's presence gave a remarkable response, uh, a grand sweeping account, if you will, of Old Testament history that ends up turning the tables uh, on those and point, uh, those of accusers and, and putting the guilt on them and leveling charges against them. And his defense begins with the forefather of the Hebrew people, Abraham. What's the significance of his speech beginning with Abraham? Well, Abraham was the reference point for what it meant to be Jewish. In fact, Jesus' own opponents had identified Abraham as their father and themselves as his descendants. So in a very real sense, he was the prototypical Jew. What is the significance of beginning with him then? Well, the text tells us that the God of glory appeared to him in Chaldees and called him to leave Mesopotamia to go to the land that God would show him. And he trusted God and his promise. And so he became known as the friend of God. And even though he had the promise of God, 
that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. Abraham and his offspring lived as sojourners. They lived as pilgrims in tents with no permanent abode. With accusations being made against Stephen pertaining to the law and the temple, he begins with Abraham, who is known as the friend of God. Now, catch the significance of this. Hundreds of years before the promised land was actually possessed. Hundreds of years before the giving of the law of Moses and hundreds of years more before the building of the temple. The three things that anchored Jewish identity in Jesus and Stephen's day, the land, the law, and the temple, did not apply to Abraham. And so strongly suggesting that there was more to truly walking with the God of glory than those things. And in what follows, Stephen begins to paint a picture of Israel rejecting and resisting the deliverers and messengers sent to them by God throughout Old Testament history. And he begins with Joseph. The pattern begins with the patriarchs, with Joseph. And Stephen says that they were jealous of Joseph, but a reading of Genesis 37 gives a fuller sense of the situation. Remember, Joseph had been given a dream while, uh, while he and his brothers were, it's a dream that they were gathering their wheat into sheaves, and, and Joseph's was raised up, And the brothers' sheaves bowed down to his. And then he had another dream that the sun, the moon, and the stars were all bowing down to him. And the meaning of the dream was not lost on his brothers. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 8, his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. They betrayed Joseph. And they sold him for silver into slavery in Egypt. But God's promise and God's plan and purpose could not be stopped. For he had chosen Joseph and he continued to guide his rise in Egypt as a deliverer for the very ones who betrayed him. And Joseph's life foreshadows and points us forward to Christ, the ultimate deliverer, who like Joseph was also betrayed in exchange for a sum of silver by Judas. So through the resistance and rejection directed at Joseph, Stephen begins to paint a pattern, if you will, repeated throughout the history of Israel in regards to the deliverers sent by God. He starts with Joseph, but he also continues with Moses. The resistance to Moses that he experienced, the very one, remember, that Stephen is being accused of subverting. Maybe he was thinking, do you really want to talk about Moses? I'm not sure that you do. Because you may not like where this goes. Because, similar to Joseph, the Lord had intervened in raising up Moses as his chosen deliverer. Remember, he intervened and saved him and delivered him from death as an infant. But the pattern of resistance and rejection to him in that capacity as a deliverer also continued. When Moses attempted to intervene between two Israelites who were fighting, they asked, Who made you ruler and judge over us? They resisted and rejected Moses, like Joseph, and Moses fled to Midian. But God's purpose to deliver through his chosen agent could not be stopped. He was with Joseph as he went down to Egypt, and he was with Moses, and he called to Moses through the burning bush and sent him back to Egypt. And Stephen emphasizes what transpired here. He says, this is the same Moses they had rejected with words. Who made you ruler and judge? Does that sound familiar? 
He was sent to be their ruler and delivered by God himself. So the answer to their question, who made you ruler and judge, the answer was, well, God himself did. But they had rejected that and resisted that. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. They resisted Moses and ultimately they resisted God. Note the reference to wonders and signs, the same things that were happening in the ministry of Jesus and his apostles and now Stephen validating that God was at work in what was happening now in Jesus' name. So Stephen also pointed out Moses' own words that another even greater deliverer and messenger, a prophet, would be raised up. Which was a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18 that Peter also cited in relation to Jesus in Acts chapter 3. And the impact of it it is that Stephen's accusers should have been looking for and have been seeing the fulfillment of all this in Jesus, but they didn't or they refused And as Stephen continues his Old Testament history lesson, a very unflattering picture begins to come into focus that he's been painting. He says, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. Try to grasp the significance of this picture. From the initial giving of the law at Sinai, Moses is still on the mountain meeting with God. And while he is doing so, there is resistance and rejection and rebellion against God and against Moses and against as his chosen agent of deliverance. And their idolatry in worshiping the calf segues or transitions to Stephen's response to their accusations about the temple. So he had been accused of subverting Moses. He had been accused of subverting the temple. Now he addresses that. After painting a picture of Israel's resisting and rejecting the deliverer sent by God, Stephen pivots, in a sense, to their rejection of God himself, as seen in their idolatry. The idolatry that started with the golden calf at the moment the law was given. In the honeymoon period of Israel's deliverance, they are being unfaithful to him. And it was not an isolated incident. Throughout Old Testament history, there was a pattern of Israel falling deeper and deeper into fuller expressions of idolatry. And of God sending prophets like the prophet Amos, who uh, Stephen cites in Acts chapter 7, verse 43, when he says, You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. God's presence had been in the midst of the Israelites through the tabernacle while they conquered the land that God had promised to Abraham. And then it was manifested ultimately in the permanent temple built by Solomon. But Stephen cites the prophet Isaiah to show the temple made by human hands was never an adequate dwelling for God and had almost become an idol in itself. 
The Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? The presence of the temple in their midst was not as important as the presence of God in their midst, whom they had a pattern of resisting and rejecting, a pattern that led to their exile from the land and ultimately to the destruction of the temple they so revered and accused Stephen now of speaking against. And so finally, Stephen turns the light back on his accusers and makes a forceful indictment of his own that can almost seem to come out of nowhere. But I wonder if at this point, Stephen's powerful, eloquent speech that had been building to a climax at this point, I wonder if the remainder of what the prophet Isaiah said that he had cited earlier, Isaiah chapter 66, where it says this, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. But as he looks at his interrogators, those who had seen and heard the Lord Jesus himself, Stephen has a different assessment. You stiff-necked people, Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Like a prosecutor closing his argument, Stephen declares they were the ones who were in opposition to God. They were the ones who were resisting the Holy Spirit. They were the pinnacle of the mountain of evidence of the pattern of resistance and rejection that he had established. Their ancestors persecuted and killed the prophets, God's chosen messengers. But they had persecuted and murdered the promised Messiah whom those prophets foretold. They had outwardly revered the law but were in actuality defiant in their hearts toward God's rule and disobedient. They were guilty, not Stephen. And so Stephen's remarkable speech that takes him through this sweeping view of Old Testament history from the perspective of who Jesus is turns the tables on them and instead of pointing the guilt at him, turns it back on them. And everything about Stephen's death now that we look at points to the glory and authority of King Jesus. You see, the Jewish leaders were furious with Stephen's speech. I would have loved to be in that room or that space to get a sense of, of the, the atmosphere. But it was what came next that put them over the edge. They responded in complete irrational rage. Did you hear that in the text? Covering their ears and screaming when Stephen finally spoke explicitly of Jesus and why. Think back just a few months ago to our series in the book of Daniel, where in chapter 7 of that book, Daniel is given a vision of one like a son of man. And in that vision, the Son of Man was given authority, glory, and power. He was worshipped among all peoples and nations. He was God's chosen ruler. He was God's redeeming king. And throughout his earthly ministry, Son of Man was Jesus' preferred way of identifying himself. Jesus is the Son of Man. In Luke's gospel, consider Jesus' last words to the chief priests and teachers of the law who were accusing him, the same lot that is now accusing Stephen. 
And Jesus said at that time, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And so in this moment, Stephen wasn't just making an observation. He was making a bold declaration of Jesus as Lord and King, standing in authority at God's right hand. Look, he said. It wasn't just a moment of mercy to this man who was about to be martyred. No, it was a declaration. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The God of glory had appeared to Abraham and now the God of glory had come to his servant, Stephen. And the death of Stephen should turn our thoughts to that of the Lord Jesus because there are significant parallels. Though he was innocent, Stephen was taken outside the city to be murdered by wicked men violently as his Lord was at Golgotha. As his life was ebbing away, he cried out to Jesus, commending his spirit into his hands as Jesus had done to the Father at the cross. And like Jesus, this remarkable man died thinking of his executioners, asking the Lord to not hold this sin against them. Stephen died for his king, and Stephen died like his king. In his life, Stephen had worshipped and served him as a king who was worth living for. In the end, Jesus was also a king that was worth dying for. So what are some takeaways that we should consider as we think about this remarkable passage? I attempted just to give you an overview of what was happening in all the details of this exchange between Stephen and his accusers. But what are some takeaways that we should take? Well, I would say, where do we begin? <laughs> because it's been a survey of almost the entire Old Testament and what the significance of Jesus' life and ministry and who he is. But I will attempt to just make three this morning. And I, as I said earlier, continue to keep digging into this passage yourself. The first is this. Our biggest problem as human beings is our resistance to and rejection of the rule of God in our lives. That fact was made very clear by Stephen as he traced Israel's history. But that fact would also be very clear if you were to trace it through my history and through yours. We are no better. Our hearts resist him like theirs did. Our hearts cry out, who made you ruler and judge? Will you reign over me? Everything in Acts now culminating in Stephen points to the fact that God has made Jesus both Lord and King. These Jewish leaders had not, but more importantly, would not recognize him as such. Repent and humble their hearts before him in faith. But you can. We can. The more important question is, will you? The writer of Hebrews said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In 2 Corinthians, we are told, Today is the day of salvation. You can respond to Jesus and see him for who he is and put your faith in him as God's chosen deliverer for your sins and for mine. Our heart's biggest problem our biggest problem is, as, as human beings is our resistance to God's rule. But God has provided a solution for that in his son. Secondly, as a follower of Jesus, 
who you are in him will always precede anything you do for him. Who you are in him will always precede anything you do for him. How is Stephen able to deliver such an eloquent and powerful speech, seemingly extemporaneously, sweeping Old Testament history to bring to bear in defense of Jesus in the gospel just like that? How was he able to face martyrdom, bringing glory to Jesus by being like him in his own death? I don't think Stephen was looking for and preparing for this moment. He simply loved his king and sought to live in him and serve him day by day. This posture towards God transformed him to the extent that his life was full, under the full control of the Holy Spirit. We can and should have the same experience of the Spirit's work in our lives today. Before our feet hit the floor each morning, we can look to God in prayer, asking Him to graciously fill our lives with the Spirit's influence like Stephen's. We can engage the Word of God given through the Spirit, being transformed into the image of Christ as He's revealed to us through it. We can seek to live in Jesus and serve Him humbly, as Stephen did, serving tables because he is our king. And whether we are called ever to do something like Stephen is not ours to know. But who we are in Jesus, whether I am filled with his spirit, whether you are, will always precede anything that is done for him. And finally... Absolutely nothing and no one can prevent the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world until he comes. We have been seeing that over and over again in the book of Acts, that the gospel has been unstoppable in the face of pressure and opposition. But what about death? <laughs> what about execution? And this is not an abstract consideration or a concern of the past, as Reese alluded to earlier. Open Doors is a ministry that supports persecuted Christians around the world. And every year they put out a watch list of the 50 countries that are the most dangerous to live in as Christians. Where people are persecuted simply for being followers of Christ. According to Open Doors, every day 11 followers of Jesus are martyred in these 50 countries. Simply for being Christians and living for him like Stephen. The early church father Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And this doesn't mean that persecution and martyrdom are good things to be sought, but what we can and should take courage and take heart from is this, is that pressure, persecution, and even martyrdom cannot hold back the unstoppable mission of King Jesus in this world. It didn't work with Stephen. A great persecution broke out, yes, and the church was scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, but they took the gospel with them. This was all according to God's sovereign plan. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And a young man named Saul, who likely argued theologically with Stephen that day, who approved of his death, and persecuted Christians ultimately became the Apostle Paul, taking the gospel of his King Jesus to the Gentile world. Paul, who approved of the killing of Stephen, went on to love and revere Jesus so much that he ended up dying for him as his King and his Savior 
as well. How did all this happen? The gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. It is his unstoppable force in this world because it is all about Jesus. It is the good news of King Jesus. Nothing, no one can prevent its spread. As we saw in Stephen, he is a king worth living for. He's also a king worth dying for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us eyes this morning to see King Jesus as Stephen did that fateful day he was martyred. As the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, Lord, we acknowledge that pull within us to resist you and your rule over our hearts and lives. And as Stephen demonstrated this in the life and history of Israel, we confess that same reality could be said of each of us. Give us humble and contrite hearts that tremble at your word and look to Jesus, your chosen deliverer, to save us from our sin. May we be like Abraham, the friend of God, who responded to your call and your promise with simple but profound faith that we might be known as the same, friends of God. And as we seek to serve you, Lord, remind us that who we are in you always precedes anything done for you. We, need, we each need more of your influence and control in our lives through your Holy Spirit. By your grace and the power of your gospel, transform us more into the likeness of Jesus. May our lives individually and our corporate life together as a church reflect your glory as Stephen's face did. And finally, Father, we pray for the furtherance of your gospel around the world until you come. Thank you for the knowledge and the encouragement that pressure, pushback, persecution, and even execution is unable to hold back the tide of your kingdom plan through the gospel. So we pray for greater boldness, therefore, in wisdom, in seeking gospel transformation in these difficult times, in the streets of Chessington around us, and of all the communities from which we come, like Claygate, Epsom, Ewell, Leatherhead, and all around, Throughout our region and beyond, Lord, give us wisdom and strengthen our hands and our hearts in gospel partnership with our brothers and sisters around the world that the glory of King Jesus, a king worth living for and a, queen, a king worth dying for, might be revealed in us and through us. For your glory we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.